Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to the latest podcast from Rude Pedersen Public Affairs in Brussels. I'm joined today by Dan Dalton, who is one of the senior advisors in the Brussels office. Dan is a former Conservative MEP, but before that worked in the Parliament as an advisor and for the ECR group and was a member of the ITRE committee. Welcome, Dan. Good morning, Simon. How are you? Very, very well, thank you. We want to talk this morning about crypto, which I think more and more people are hearing about. You can't really avoid hearing about or seeing advertising, probably online to trade crypto, to get into crypto. If you take the tube in London, you'll see lots of advertising. And now and again, uh, you'll see Bitcoin vending machines or, or machines where you can buy Bitcoin. And I noticed that Binance, big crypto trading platform, has started sponsoring a lot of uh, music events. So there's a huge marketing and promotional drive going on. But even though it's increasingly popular, I'm not sure that everybody out there really knows what crypto is, does and what it's for. So for this for our podcast today, I'd like to kick off by asking you, Dan, if, if at all possible, it's a tall order. Just give us an overview of what crypto's for and why it's useful, what it replaces, what the attraction is. I think it's, it's quite a difficult question uh, to answer in, in a few minutes, but basically crypto isn't necessarily anything new. Uh, I think Bitcoin originally emerged in California back over a decade ago. And the idea, I think, behind Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies that are then developed from there really was about creating a sort of decentralized currency that could be used in a digital environment that can't be controlled by any one person. And blockchains developed, obviously, Bitcoin and all the cryptocurrencies run on a uh, blockchain, which by definition is designed not to be controlled by one individual person. And so I think that was the idea behind these virtual currencies in the first place, that they couldn't be controlled by one person, one government, that they were universally traded and that uh, eventually they will become a means of exchange. I think that was the original sort of idea behind them. Now, they've obviously come a long, long way since there, and there are many different types of cryptocurrencies now. Bitcoin is, of course, the one that everyone has heard of and is the strongest one and has appreciated hugely in price in the 10, 12 years since it's been uh, since it was originally uh, invented. Exactly. Now, you mentioned the idea that governments can't control it. Um, that is or was very much a part of the appeal of crypto and, and still is in some quarters. I think the, the expansion of crypto and the growth of crypto also came in the wake of the financial crisis where people felt that it was actually too easy for governments to take a slice off bonds uh, we saw that in the Eurozone crisis, you know, in, in places like Cyprus to impose new taxes, but also with quantitative easing. And I'm not going to ask you to explain quantitative easing unless you want to. But, you know, that was a central bank policy that also had a very, very strong effect on asset values. Um, so the, the, the sort of the idea of a financial system outside traditional financial controls that was very strong at the beginning. How strong is that now as a sort of rationale for crypto? I think it's still a strong rationale. I mean, I think you, you, you shouldn't look at it just in that context of, you know, when it was originally invented with the, the Eurozone crisis, quantitative easing, the financial crisis 
back in 2007, 2008. I mean, these things have been going on throughout the history of civilization, if you like. Um, you know, once you've had a currency that's been controlled by one central actor, by, by a government, there have always been cases where currencies have devalued massively because the governments have spent too much or, you know, currencies have just simply failed. So I think the idea was probably bigger than just out of that particular historical context. It was an idea which was coming and technology had got to the stage where it could facilitate it. So I think it was it was inevitable. I think it, there, are, there are a number of books going back 20, 30 years explaining that virtual currencies are going to be inevitable. Um, However, that is, I think, a big part of the initial appeal is that, you know, particularly, I mean, we're talking in Brussels and, and you know, generally most of the North and West European uh, countries have relatively stable currencies over time and the US have relatively stable currency over time. But if you are sitting here listening to this in Central African Republic or um, other parts of the world where Latin America, yeah, yeah, yeah. where you've seen hyperinflation over time, yeah. Zimbabwe, for example, yeah. You know, the idea that the value of the money that you hold can't be manipulated by governments is very attractive. And I think it was that libertarian sort of vision that started it. Now, of course, we're now coming to the stage where that that idealistic vision hits the real world, uh, which is, uh, of course, the challenge, because as you mentioned at the start, you know, this is now becoming part of the mainstream. Everyone is being exposed to ads for, for cryptocurrencies, for crypto exchanges you know everyone is getting curious about what these things are so there's a limit to where that ideological vision can go but i think the starting point was very much libertarian you know sure. let's do something global outside of the uh, remit of governments sure i mean um, you're sort of touching on taking us on to sort of the regulatory thing but I, I want to come on to that in a little while before we do that i mean to make the positive case for crypto We've talked about it in terms of cryptocurrencies, but surely the wider appeal is as an investment vehicle, as a form of financial security. So you buy, trade, hold crypto uh, assets in the way that you, you you do. And in fact, crypto assets are often linked to the value of other assets, uh, whether they're shares in Apple or linked to what we call fiat currencies and, and currencies created and, and controlled by governments. What's the appeal of crypto? I mean, is it just a new asset class for people to invest in and make money from if they're smart? Yeah, I think so. I mean, first of all, in the absence of what the original goal of crypto was, which is as a means of exchange, a medium of of exchange, which hasn't really taken off hugely at this stage. um, Of course, these currencies have, on the other hand, massively uh, increased in value over the last 10 years. So as an investment opportunity, I think many people you know, know or have heard stories of people that invested when Bitcoin was at one or two dollars and now they're sitting on an asset that's, you know, fluctuating significantly, but is at around, you know, 40,000 US dollars. It's a massive, uh, massive uh, increase. So, of course, that is attractive in some way. People are always looking to make uh, investment gains. The beauty, though, of trading crypto assets in comparison to sort of traditional stocks and shares is the exchanges that have come up have allowed you to buy very, very small fractions of uh, of one of these uh, currencies for very little money. So, for example, you could go in and, and buy a tiny fraction of Bitcoin for one or two euros, for example. And so it's a bit more user friendly coming in at the first uh, stage. It's also an asset class which up to now has had, you know, relatively limited regulation around it. So it's been quite easy for people to um, to get involved in it now. 
all of this is still very embryonic. We're at the start of seeing what crypto asset trading really is, what it could do, where, where it will go. But right now, I think you're right in that it's a separate asset class. People are playing around with it. It's more volatile than the stock market on the whole. And as a result, people are attracted by the by thinking that they can make quick gains. Of course, you can also make very, very substantial losses at the same time. Um, it's just easier, something new. And I think that's basically what the attraction of it uh, has been. And of course, the big advantage is that the, the fees for trading crypto assets are very low. And even in some cases, you can basically do it for free. That's a big part of the attraction. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think the, the exchanges make their money a bit on the spreads, as as they would always do in a similar way to the traditional stock markets and stockbrokers would do. But yeah, it's free it's, or very cheap. It's very easy to get into on the surface. Uh, it looks like people can make significant gains, especially if they pick a, you know, new up, up and coming cryptocurrency that's very cheap, and then that suddenly gets a big jump in price. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I think I think all of this ties into it. It's something different. It's a little bit revolutionary, and I think people, are, of course, get yeah. you know attracted by that. When you come to trade it, you know, if it, gold, the price of gold is linked to how much gold there is available on the market, well, how much the mines are producing and we have supply and demand. What what drives um, the price of crypto assets? Well, I mean, there are a number of reasons. I mean, the first one on particularly with Bitcoin is that there's very limited supply. And I mean, there are many different types of crypto assets, but Bitcoin, for example, there's only ever going to be 21 million bitcoins mined um a proportion of them have been lost uh, and a proportion of them have not yet been mined so i think one of the things that really drives the bitcoin price is that scarcity that managed and designed scarcity now um of course that that's different with different cryptocurrencies um but that's certainly the attraction uh, of bitcoin and i think the price i mean it's still probably a bit early to 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 say everything that actually impacts the price Bitcoin has tended to align with the tech stocks in terms of uh, right. it's, it's jumped quite substantially in line with the the, the sort of bull market in um, those tech stocks. Now, as we're talking at the, at, at the moment, those tech stocks are hitting you know, some problems, as is the Bitcoin price. So at the moment, it seems like they correlate with, a, with as a risk asset uh, with the tech stocks. But, you know, going forward, we're given the fact that there is that scarcity of Bitcoin and uh, increasing numbers of people coming to it. Um, I think the idea basically is that that will drive an increase in the price over time. Absolutely. Well, and I wanted to ask about that. I mean, does the value and the success, if you like, of crypto, does it depend on a constant stream of new customers coming into the market? Because, as you know, there is a, there's a lot of spending on marketing. Is that essential? What happens if that flow of new customers dries up or if there's a big crash in the price of, of Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies and, and it scares off new entrants? Well, I think the whole point of Bitcoin in particular is that it's a free market. You pay the price that, uh, or, you know, someone will pay the price that they're prepared to pay for it, if you like. Yeah. So there's nothing propping up the price, if you like. Yeah. You know, the price at any moment is what someone is prepared to pay for as a result it's volatile right yeah um, yeah sure as are all asset prices yeah but as, you know from the ideological perspective of where bitcoin started that's um that's part of the libertarian ethos of it it's a free market you know if there's yeah. no one out there prepared to pay their price and it crashes that's 
not yeah. necessarily a bad thing because that's yeah. it's finding its its natural price. So that's one thing. The other thing which affects the price and I think is important in this context is that a large number of bitcoins are not available at any one moment to be bought or sold because they've been taken right. off the exchanges. They're in offline wallets, right? And I guess we'll come to a discussion on on some of the regulation that's linked to this later. But um, sure. that is an important thing because it's not just the scarcity of the overall number. It's also the scarcity of how many are actually available for buying and selling at any particular time. Right. So so then there's the other issue I think we need to address is there does seem to be suspicion, at least, and particularly from regulators and politicians, that crypto is paradise for money launderers, terrorists, criminals, etc. Is that a fair accusation, Dan? What do you make of that? Well, I think there's definitely truth in that at the start. I mean, um, clearly at the start, Bitcoin in particular was being used for those activities because it was a new asset class that was relatively unknown and relatively secretive. Um, so therefore, um, it was clearly used a lot in the past for those for those things that you mentioned. Where we are now, and uh, you know, the fact that it's become mainstream, I think, changes this slightly as well. Because actually, you know, all transactions on the blockchain, you know, are traceable. I mean, you know, the whole point of the blockchain is that anyone can download the Bitcoin blockchain, and also the the fact that it's decentralized in terms of different nodes or, or, or computers on the system have to approve transactions means that there's always a chain. Uh, right. with each. Uh, so it can, you know, up to that point, it, it can be traced. I think the reputation it has is is a little bit, as you've mentioned, because certainly in, you know, it has been used for those purposes in the past. But um, I don't think that means that it completely devalidates the, the whole sort of idea behind. It. Sure. Sure. Well, that also then brings us neatly on to the issue of regulation. And if we can maybe look first at what the EU is is doing in terms of regulation, there are sort of two main pieces of legislation. One it comes under the latest anti-money laundering rules, and we refer to it as the travel rules. It's about the transparency of transactions in crypto, and in particular, what happens with wallets and digital wallets that are used to store crypto assets. Now, the EU, or certainly members of the Parliament, have taken quite a, a tough line on this, saying that basically platforms, exchanges, should carry out or ha know the identity details for unhosted wallets. Do you want to just maybe explain how that works, Dan, and then and then tell us about what you think about that approach, whether it's appropriate, effective? Yeah, I think maybe setting the scene is quite good here first, isn't it? In terms of what I think is happening in general with all of these this regulation is that regulators are trying to effectively shoehorn cryptocurrencies in, into the existing frame-up, the, the existing financial system, right? Uh, and there are a number of um, uh, policies where it's doing this. Now, when that links to the travel rules, there are already rules in place to stop or to address money laundering in terms of transfer of money between bank accounts. And normally these kick in the anti-money laundering rules when when you're over a 10,000 euro uh, limit. Uh, and these are also rules are in, uh, employed at airports where, you know, you'll be checked if you've got cash over a certain amount. It's all this this type of rule to stop uh, money laundering effectively. Now, what is happening with these rules for crypto is that they want to extend these rules to cryptocurrencies, which on the surface seems a, a reasonable request. But the European Parliament has gone a lot further than the rules that would apply for money transfers. And this, I think, where the problem has come, because the European Parliament is actually 
saying that every crypto transaction would need to be accompanied, uh, would fall foul of the rules. Either there would need to be checks on the people buying and selling those assets, uh, even if it was a 0.01 euro cent, for example. So that's one problem. The second problem is that both the people buying or selling or transferring those assets would need to give that information. And where that becomes a problem in, in crypto assets is because, I'm, as I mentioned earlier, some of where a large proportion of crypto assets are kept in offline wallets. And there's a very you know, sensible reason why they're kept in offline wallets, because effectively a cryptocurrency is a code. It's not, you know, a, it, it, it's not a piece of money that's that's backed up anyway. Yeah. It's a code, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and if the code is kept on an exchange and that exchange is hacked, you've lost that code. You've lost that yeah. money, right? Yeah. So the, the advice to everyone. And that happens. I mean, that happens that, reasonably that has, frequently. Yeah. That yeah. has happened on many occasions, right? Yeah. So yeah. if you're holding cryptocurrencies, you should be holding it in an offline wallet, right? Yeah. Because it's off the internet. It, it can't yeah. be hacked or, yeah. or, or that. But at some stage, you've got to bring that back onto uh, an exchange to uh, exchange the currency, either for another cryptocurrency or for cash. Uh, and what the money transfer rules are saying is that um, the exchange that's receiving those incoming crypto uh, assets would need to ask for information about the person sending it from that offline wallet now that's a and big that, problem and if i could and, but that sounds that sounds reasonable to me i mean is that unreasonable well yeah because the offline wallet is anonymous by definition so the whole point of an offline wallet is not owned by a company it's not owned by anyone keeping any information on that because if they did that makes it much more likely that uh, it could itself be hacked so the whole point of it is for security um an offline wallet is effectively like a USB key. Okay, mm -hmm. so it's not registered with anyone. If it is registered, then you immediately have security problems. So um, mm -hmm. that's the problem with it. Now, um, the other problem, of course, is what happens when these rules first come into place? Because most of the crypto assets are on these offline wallets yeah. that are not registered or linked anywhere. So how is that going to be transferred in the first place if the receiving exchange cannot accept it without that information, which is impossible to give? So now that's the overall challenge with it i'm relatively confident that these things you know they work out in the wash you know in the negotiations yeah. in trialogues and and in the delegated acts or whatever that come afterwards that yeah that will be solved but the basic premise of it is a misunderstanding of how the crypto um industry effectively works i wanted to ask you about that because the trialogues have started on the travel rules and the latest information at the time this podcast is being recorded was that some of the, the member states were pushing back against the parliament's requests on uh, transparency for unhosted wallets. So I think it, it sounds like you're right that the direction is maybe towards a more rather more pragmatic solution. Um, so let's see. Let's not try and speculate too much on that for the moment. The other big piece of legislation going through is is Mika, the markets in crypto assets regulation which is fairly advanced but not quite not easy to say at the moment or not clear when that might be all settled do you want to just give us a brief explanation of that dan yeah well very sort of broad terms mika is effectively you know a mifid for crypto assets if you like uh, and the mifid is the rules that cover you know financial assets in general yeah. but crypto has been out on the whole has been outside of those rules now uh, there's an argument that some crypto transactions could have you know been been defined within mifid but um they aren't and here's a separate regulation now yeah. um uh, you know and i think originally the idea behind this was probably the commission was pretty worried about um 
Facebook who, oh, yeah. were, who were coming, trying to come forward with this Libra currency and this idea that this sort of separate currencies uh, would be a worry for them. Now, of course, that's now sort of died out a bit. I think that, you know, uh, Meta now have just sort of gone cold on that idea. But I think, the legislation- I, think I think they've sold the business that was sort of developing it. Actually, they've sold the bit of the company off altogether. Mm, yeah. So the initial sort of justification, I think, or thinking behind the, the proposal isn't there. However, I do think it's quite an interesting proposal for the future of crypto assets in Europe, because it does and will set a framework that completely legitimizes crypto asset trading within Europe. So I do think there's going to be a set of rules and they might be quite tough for, for those in the industry. But on the other hand, that will be a set of rules for a, you know, single market, the richest single market in the world, which will have a legitimate set of rules, which actually could be, I think, potentially quite attractive for for the industry for in Europe going forward. One of the challenges with this one, of course, is again, there's a bit of a misunderstanding in the parliament. And there was a big debate about um, not allowing ex- exchanges to list assets that use the proof of work. So just, just for our non-experts listening out there, this was sort of reported as basically the, the sort of the environmental unsustainability, the energy consumption of these data, these data farms in Kazakhstan and, and various places across the world using huge amounts of energy to actually crunch the, the transactions. Is, is that right? Yeah, exactly. So there was a concern and a justifiable concern from some in the parliament about the environmental impact of crypto mining, particularly because those are the crypto assets that use the proof of work approach. And I think they wanted to demonstrate, you know, their concern about this by proposing a, a ban on listing proof of work assets. Now, that actually got defeated in committee, so it didn't come yeah. through. But it does yeah. also demonstrate that the approach of policymakers to crypto is to find a way for crypto to fit into the existing, you know, financial political framework that we have, which is completely understandable and natural. I would argue that possibly there are many opportunities potentially for Europe in embracing crypto assets uh, and a separate type of regime could also have been looked at. Now, I suspect over time that's what will happen if crypto assets continue to take over the world, if you like. But at this stage of moment, where we are right now, I think there wasn't a huge amount of sort of vision. You know, it's just like, let's make sure that we put it within the existing framework. Yeah, yeah. Which has been the approach ever since the financial crisis to make sure no part of financial markets goes unsupervised and unregulated. So in that sense, it was at least consistent. You may not agree with that approach, but at least it was consistent. And we're sort of coming to the end of our time. But maybe if if I could just ask you one more question. Well, two, actually. So one, when you look at the EU's approach, where's the balance between the traditional finance and banking community or regulatory community rather who are slightly distrustful i mean we monitor these things quite closely every other week someone from the ecb or the the fsb is warning uh, about the need to regulate crypto so where is the eu's position between those who are skeptical and and have a sort of knee-jerk desire to regulate and basically apply the existing financial market rules to crypto and those on the other side who see the opportunity and see it as a growing technology that that the eu can't afford or shouldn't miss out on i mean i've been surprised that green meps including people like sven gigolt who's um you know leading green voice on the Economic and Finance Committee, now in the German government, 
as, was actually pro-crypto because he's against big banks and he sees it as a sort of more d- democratic part of the financial system, which was, you know, surprised me, may not have surprised others. But so where do you think the balance is between the conservatives on one hand and the pro-innovators on the other? I mean, I think the balance is very strongly in the favour of the traditionalists, but I don't think that's anything abnormal. I think if you look at, you know, digital regulation across the board, of which crypto is just one element of digital regulation that we've had in the last yeah, 10 sure. years from the European Commission and in the European Parliament, that traditional sense has been generally there across the board, particularly in Brussels. Now, I think in the member states, you see differently. Some member states yeah. you know, look at this differently. I think that's where the more visionary stuff is probably at member state level. In Brussels, I, you know, I think it's, it's much more the establishment type of approach, but I don't necessarily think that's either unreasonable or surprising uh, given the fact that you know the commission's role is to protect and enforce the treaties uh, i can understand that there is some skepticism and, and worry about this this new asset class that comes in but i do think there's a missed opportunity here because europe actually you know could be the center of developments in this area and increasingly you're beginning to see the traditional finance sector and the crypto finance center come closer and closer together. I mean, you know, there's been an explosion of these stock buying apps. You know, you see companies like Free Trade or Bitpanda, for example, that allow you to buy fractions of stocks as a commercial retail buyer. And and I think that's been driven a bit by the crypto exchanges originally. You know, that vision that actually let's make stock buying and selling also easy and open to to everyone. So it's beginning to change. And I think you'll probably see actually in the next five, 10 years, a bit of a merger between crypto and, and well, fintech, if you like, in the traditional finance uh, sector, you're already beginning to see this in the US. And I, I think this will come to the, the EU as well. And that then might might modify the, the views of those who at the moment are, are more traditional in this area. Great. Well, I think that's a great place to finish, Dan. Uh, that's a great summing up, a great tour d'horizon of the crypto world and the EU's regulatory approach. You've been listening to Rude Pedersen, podcast brought to you by the finance team, Dan Dalton, Senior Advisor, Simon Taylor, Associate Director. If you'd like to hear more about the work we're doing on crypto and other areas of fintech and financial services, you can find our details um, on our website. Thanks for listening today and uh, goodbye for now.